Today our nation joins with you in grief. We mourn with you. We share your hope against hope that some may still survive. We thank all those who have worked so heroically to save lives and to solve this crime, those here in Oklahoma and those who are all across this great land and many who left their own lives to come here to work hand in hand with you. We pledge to do all we can to help you heal the injured, to rebuild this city, and to bring to justice those who did this evil. There are some days in American history that will live in infamy forever. One of those days took place in Oklahoma City on April 19, 1995, when Timothy McVeigh blew up the federal building. I knew a little bit about the Oklahoma City bombing, but it really wasn't until I went to the museum that I really grew to appreciate how many people this tragedy touched. 168 people were killed and over 700 injured. And if you do come by Oklahoma City, I strongly urge you to go to the museum and really understand what happened. Today we're going to talk about the bombing. And we have three people that were involved in the events of that day and the days following. We're joined today by Johnny Kuhlman, who is the U.S. Marshal for the Western District of Oklahoma. And back in 1995, he was a member of the Oklahoma City Police Department. Welcome. We're joined by Deputy Marshal Chuck McNeil, who's been on the job for... 33 years. 33 years. And we're very honored to have retired Noble County Sheriff Charlie Hanger, who in 1995 was Oklahoma Highway Patrolman. Welcome. Good to be here. We're going to talk about the events of April 19th. What were you all doing prior to 9.02 a.m. when the blast occurred? What was that day looking like for you? Well, I was uh, a lieutenant with the Oklahoma City Police Department assigned to the robbery unit. So, you know, normal duties that morning uh, would be to assign cases that came in, the robberies from the night before, uh, assigning those cases and visiting with investigators and getting updates on their cases and kind of planning the day out. Mm -hmm. And Chuck? I had been out uh, the night before with uh, DEA uh, making an undercover buy till about 1.30 in the morning. Um, the next morning I had a court appearance scheduled at, at 9 o'clock, and actually it was at 9.30 the next morning, excuse me. That morning, I realized that I had ended up with one of the DEA's handheld radios um, from the night before. Probably pulled in the parking garage at 8, 8.15, um, took the radio up to the DEA office. Uh -huh. um, one of the DEA administrative girls, Carrie Lenz, who was killed in the bombing, was there. And I, I gave Carrie the radio and said, hey, uh, if any of the guys ever get to work today, I said, tell them I ended up with one of their radios. Right. I walked across the parking garage and up to my office on the second floor of the, the federal courthouse. Right. And myself and a deputy named Dave Krug were, were sitting at our desks at 
902 mm-hmm. when when the bomb went off mm-hmm. and we thought our building had exploded we thought it was a gas liner i mean we had ceiling tile coming down all the windows in the courthouse were blown out charlie where were you what was that morning looking like for you on that morning i was working a day shift went to work at seven o'clock that morning it was just uh, working routine uh, traffic patrol mm-hmm. uh, i was assigned to noble county which is uh, about 60 miles north of oklahoma city and I uh, was just uh, taking care of routine traffic con- uh, control and patrol right. business. Right. And then 902 occurs, and the blast goes off. And I know a lot of people had a lot of different things about what they thought had initially happened after the shock of, of the blast. So, Marshall, how far were you away from, from the federal building at, at 902? Well, I'm going to guess the police department's about five or six blocks away give or take Mm -hmm. and uh once again it was there was no mistaking it it was a um just a tremendous blast uh the floor shook um and at that time i'd never been in an earthquake um but but you could tell it wasn't an earthquake because of the blast um and of course we immediately started evacuating the building and of course the minute you got outside you saw the dark plume of black smoke and you could smell uh what was what it smelled like to me was like gunpowder in the air, and um, so your first thoughts, like unlike other people, your first thoughts weren't that it was a gas a gas explosion. Well, I think my first thought may have been, but but then when you got outside and smelled the gunpowder, then even though I was never a bomb tech, it didn't take much to figure out it was it was something more than a gas explosion. Right, and Chuck, I was in the marshal's office, uh, sitting next to a deputy named Dave Krug, and uh, I mean just. Immediately, I mean, the ceiling tiles started caving in. A couple of our doors blew in. Um, a retired deputy, Phil Lakey, was back in the in the warrant room, and a, a safe blew over um, on on Phil. A couple of us went running back there to help him. Got the safe off of him, and we started making our way out into the hall. And already in this building, I mean the the smoke and the dust in the hall you couldn't see three feet in front of your face and we we literally felt our way to the staircase um four or five people four or five deputies that were there that morning were assigned to stay with the prisoners we immediately called oklahoma county which is where we housed our federal prisoners at the time um to get them over here and get the the inmates out uh, as as quick as possible. What what were your first thoughts? What did you think had happened? I thought a gas line in our building had exploded, mm-hmm. and I mean the dust inside the building and the and the smoke was was so thick. Like I said, yet we had to feel our ways down the hall. I made it down to the fourth uh, first floor. Uh, Chris McNeil uh, w- was in there. He was actually in one of the courtrooms. Um, with a prisoner. Chris and I took the prisoner back upstairs, and then we started making our way. As I had got to the first floor, I saw most of the courthouse at the time was plate glass windows in front. Uh-huh. And I was when I got to the first floor, which is where the courtroom was at, there were quite a few people injured um, from glass that had come out. Did the glass shatter? It just, yeah, it all blew in into the building. Uh-huh. And... So we got the prisoner upstairs. We went back downstairs. We started helping people out of our courthouse. As we got onto the street, I mean, it's literally 30 yards from our building to 
the back of the Murrah building and you couldn't even see uh you could not see the Murrah building at all the smoke the smoke and the dust were was that thick um we the people that weren't seriously injured i mean there was quite a few people that had cuts from glass and stuff like that but mm. not not seriously um we we set them on the curb and we told them um that ambulances would be would be here soon mm-hmm. when 902 came what did you know 60 70 miles away from uh, Oklahoma City at 902 I, I didn't I wasn't aware anything had happened I was probably driving down the roadway didn't feel anything but I had made my way over to the Cimarron Turnpike which is in the eastern part of Noble County where the patrol has a headquarters there mm-hmm. and I had stopped in that headquarters because I had a, a letter to transfer to that uh, detachment and I'd stop in there and visit with them occasionally and let them know I still wanted like to have that assignment but when I walked in there, the, the radio at headquarters, you could hear Oklahoma City headquarters dispatching just unit after unit to the downtown area. They had put the radio net down so that no one could use the radio unless they had emergency traffic because everything was directed to the ongoing operation in Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. But we didn't know what was going on. So we turned the television on there at headquarters and uh, saw the picture where the the Murrah building, uh, probably a third of it, had blown away, the parking lot across the road, cars were on fire, smoke everywhere. But I didn't think anything about it, that being a bomb at that very moment. Right. I thought maybe a natural gas explosion, mm-hmm. maybe a boiler blew up. But uh, the fact that someone blew that building up with a bomb never entered my, my mind. Right. And Marshall, where did you go at 902? Well, uh, you know, there weren't any injuries at the police station, at least that I was aware of. So a bunch of us piled into cars and headed over to the Murrah building. And I originally thought it was at the courthouse. Based on looking up the street where it was, I, I thought something happened in the federal courthouse. Mm-hmm. We didn't realize it was the Murrah building until we got here. And then, of course, once we got here, we started assisting people that had been injured that were out on the streets. What was your first vision of the Murrah building? Could you see the devastation could you see most of it was was gone yeah it was just uh, uh almost surreal because you could see the uh just like the sheriff said the entire front part of the building was gone uh, there were of course the fires across the street in the parking lot where the automobiles caught on fire you know amazingly there wasn't any fire in the murrah building but it was all across the street and uh, it, it was just it was almost hard to take your eyes away from it it was just unbelievable to see that uh, that type of devastation right in front of you. It was literally chaos. There were people everywhere. Uh, uh, just like Chuck said, a lot of people had uh, cuts uh, all over from flying glass. So you were trying to help those people. Of course, fire crews were responding to the actual Murrah building itself um, and trying to get inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could look up at the different floors and see people up there waving and yelling, you know, trying to get somebody's attention so they could get rescued. I mean, it was a, a pretty pretty surreal uh, event really to be standing there taking all that in mm-hmm, mm-hmm. calling all lovers of mystery prepare to don your detective hat in june's journey a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of june parker a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death 
Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. And Chuck, you're back at the courthouse trying to deal with the prisoners and give aid to some of those, some of the people that were hurt there. Still surprising to me how quick Oklahoma County got here. We got rid of the prisoners pretty quick. As, as we got the prisoners out, the people that we had set on the curb that were inside the courthouse, um, they, there were already police cars, uh, Oklahoma City Police, and ambulances pulling up on the scene and treating these people. Um, I, the, the smoke was still so thick. Uh, we, couldn't, we couldn't see uh, where the Murrah building had been. I mean, it was just a wall of smoke. And Chris McNeil and I started making our way to the west uh, parking uh, entrance to the to the Murrah building and we share the same parking garage um, underground parking mm-hmm. with the Murrah building and we started m- wake, making our way to the west side and it, I mean we were literally almost holding hands the smoke was so thick mm. and as we got to the the west side of the parking garage um, the very first person that that we encountered coming out of the Murrah building was an army recruiter who had his hand over his head, um, had a a big, big, he was bleeding really, really bad. Um, We got him to the curb, and then we actually entered um, the parking garage of the Murrah building. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right next to where my vehicle was parked, actually, um, Chris McNeil and I found uh, a nurse who had been trapped uh, under some fallen concrete, she screamed for us when, when she saw us come in the parking garage. Um, we went over to her. She was still talking uh, at the time. Um, we told her, one of us, uh, I actually, I went out to the street. Uh, I flagged down uh, an Oklahoma City fireman, and I said, hey, we've got a lady in here right inside the building that's trapped under some concrete. I said, she's in water. We didn't know at the time if if there was still any electrical power. We were concerned because mm-hmm. of the water and the electrical power. Um, about that time is when we got evacuated from the building. Um, the Oklahoma City firemen that had had helped because us because of was, the discover, discovery of a potential uh, second bomb. Correct. Right. Um, it was very short after that that, that they determined there was mm-hmm. the, uh, the the device they found mm-hmm. was inert. And you had to leave her there. Had to leave her. That couldn't have been easy. Yeah, not at all. Not at all. And as soon as the building was cleared, we immediately went back into her. Mm -hmm. Um, She was still awake and and talking at at the time. The Oklahoma City firemen came in. They started bringing rescue uh, tools and stuff in. We then moved on to try and find more victims. And uh, the Immediately after that, I found myself in what had been the daycare center uh, of the Murrah right. building. Um, uh, an Oklahoma City police officer that uh, I grew up with, he's retired now, a guy by the name of Lance Hudson. We, we got into the daycare center, and we immediately started uh, trying to, to, to get some of the little kids who had been killed out of there. 
and and as I picked up, um, I don't I don't remember if it was a little boy or a little girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, I picked up a child's body, and I looked over, and Lance Hudson uh, was standing next to me, and with just <laughs> big tears running down his face, and we both took him out to the the, the triage, go back in. And as we get back into the, the daycare center, I think we'd uh, been in there for a little bit, I heard somebody calling my name, and I, I could hear somebody yelling. I couldn't, couldn't tell where it was coming from. Mm. And I looked at the very top floor of what was left of the Murrah building, which would have been the southeast corner, and I see somebody standing up there with a radio in his hand, and I immediately recognize uh, him to be Luke Franey, a good friend of mine who is an ATF agent. And he's like, Chuck, you got to get us down. Mm-hmm. And so we start looking for Oklahoma City firemen again. We'd, we'd all just been through um, air assault school at Camp Gruber, and we even uh, were trying to make arrangements to get a helicopter. We were going to rappel down in and get him out, but Oklahoma City ended up uh, getting him. Oklahoma City Fire Department ended up getting Luke down. And the, the, the one other thing that really, really stands out in my mind was the day that we found um, Kathy Finley. She worked, at the, uh, she worked at the credit union in the Murrow Building, and her husband was a pilot for the Marshal Service um, out at what we called um, J-Pats now, mm-hmm. out at the airport. Con Air. Con Air. Mm-hmm. And we had been, we knew that Kathy had been killed in, in the bombing. And the mm-hmm. day that we found her body, um, there were four of us that <clears throat> put her on a stretcher to, to bring her out. And I, I can remember like it was yesterday, um, Billy Soodle, um, who was a, a deputy in our office at the time, Billy's Kiowa Indian. And as we're carrying Kathy out, um, Billy was chanting, praying, singing in, in, in Kiowa, uh, as we carried her out and asked him later, I said, Billy, what, what was that all about? And he said that he was saying a prayer for her mm-hmm. um, in, in Kiowa. So those are the things that stand out the most to me. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. Time goes by. No one actually has figured out what has happened yet. And about an hour and 15 minutes later, Timothy McVeigh has made his way into Noble County. There were a lot of people, I guess, from Noble County that were going to assist in Oklahoma City. But you were told to stand down from that assignment. Yes, initially, uh, while I was at the headquarters there on the turnpike, I got a radio call to respond to Oklahoma City uh-huh. and to report to the command post. And I did that. I started back across Highway 64 and, and got on Interstate 35 and proceeded south. This is where I believe the divine intervention begins because I don't get a half a mile south on Interstate 35 when I receive a second radio call telling me to disregard that assignment in Oklahoma City and remain in my area on routine patrol. Mm-hmm. The divine intervention continues because mm-hmm. I uh, come up on a motorist that's broken down just a short distance north of where I'm turning around to go back north on the interstate, and uh, it's two ladies and a, a little minivan. One of these ladies is the wife of an Oklahoma City firefighter. They're aware of the ongoing situation in Oklahoma City, 
and worried about uh, the lady was worried about what her husband's involvement might mm-hmm. be as a firefighter, mm-hmm. and they wanted to get their vehicle repaired and return to Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. So I called them a wrecker, and I sat there and waited with them till that wrecker arrived. And little did I know, but while there, Tim McVeigh had to have went past me in that old yellow Mercury. Mm-hmm. I wasn't looking for any particular vehicle, didn't see that vehicle. The wrecker arrives, and I decide to go on north on I-35 and look at an accident scene that I had investigated a few days earlier because I thought sometime during my shift I'm probably going to be sent to Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. So I'm traveling at a high rate of speed trying to get up there and take care of this task, and I'm about a mile from where I'm going to exit off. And you probably want to get to Oklahoma City. Oh, yeah, I, I would like to have went, but, yeah. you know, you, you follow orders right. as, a, as an officer. Right. So. But about a mile before I'm ready to exit off Interstate 35, uh, I pass this old yellow Mercury. He's in the right lane. I'm in the left lane, but I'm going much faster than him. Mm -hmm. So as I go by, I look back, and I look down at the car, and he doesn't have a license plate on the rear bumper. By the time I can react to that, I'm actually in front of him in the left lane. So I uh, slow down, change lanes, and initiate what I thought was just a Another routine traffic stop. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of kind of shocking, actually, that if someone's going to commit this kind of atrocity and obviously try to get away, he was 78 miles away from Oklahoma City, that he didn't have a license plate on his car. You're almost asking to get pulled over by law enforcement. I don't think he knew it was gone. Oh, uh, okay. After you know, watching his reaction whenever I told him why I'd stopped him. Right. When you pull him over, you're in back of him? I'm behind him, yeah. I noticed that he did something different than most traffic violators because usually when you make a traffic stop on interstate, people are stopping right close to that white line next to the, the uh, active lane, uh-huh. and uh, he didn't do that. He pulled his right two wheels completely into the grass and left his left two wheels on the asphalt shoulder I'd never had anybody uh, do that in the 18 half years I'd been a trooper at that point. And so I made a mental note of that, and uh, then, you know, I I began making my routine stop after we both came to to arrest on the shoulder. Uh Now, I wasn't uh, trained the way officers make traffic stops today. I wasn't trained the same way they do it. They they walk up on vehicles today. Right. Uh, I didn't do that. I opened my uh, driver's door, stood out, and stood behind that door for cover, and I yelled for the driver to get out. And that was normal? That was routine at the time? That was normal, routine traffic stop. Uh-huh, okay. Uh, he didn't initially get out, and so I yelled again, and then he opens the door of his car, and he turns around, and he sits on the, wet, on the edge of his seat, and he's looking back to the due west instead of back to the south where I'm at. And I thought, that's odd. And he sat there for a few seconds. Again, I yell to him to get out. And he finally stands up and begins walking toward me. And his hands are free and empty. You know, I don't feel there's a threat. And so we meet between the two cars. That's when I tell him why I've stopped him. Right. And when I tell him I've stopped him because he doesn't have a license plate, he immediately looked to the rear bumper where the license plate should be and quickly looked back at me. And said, oh, yeah, I've just recently bought this car. I haven't had time to get one. What was your first thought about his demeanor? Did he give off any signs of stress whatsoever? No, he didn't. You know, he was a clean-cut looking guy. He had Mm -hmm. like a military short haircut. Uh, He was wearing military-style boots, uh, dark pants, and a windbreaker jacket. It was dark blue, about like a postal worker would wear. 
But what drew my attention when I when he made the statement that he knew he didn't have a license plate, and because officers are taught to read body language, nonverbal right. communications, I thought, why did you look if you do you didn't have it? So I drew some suspicions that maybe the car was stolen, even though it was a junky old car. Right. But as somebody who just committed this kind of atrocity, you would have thought that he would be jumpy and knowing if he got caught, he would potentially face uh, the death penalty. So you would think that somebody like that would behave differently. You would. I mean, he was very calm. Uh, you know, when you look into someone's eyes, you think that's the windows to the soul. Right. And uh, you couldn't see anything that would lead you to believe he had committed such a heinous crime. And then you discovered a firearm. Yes. Well, we're there talking. Of course, I'm inquiring about the vehicle. I'm asking him if he had a, a bill of sale. Right. And uh, he says, no, the salesman I bought it from is still filling it out. Uh-huh. And I said, how long does it take to fill out a bill of sale? I don't have one. So I'm, I'm beginning to raise my suspicions on it being stolen. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I say, well, do you have proof of insurance? No, I don't. I said, well, what about a driver's license? Do you have a driver's license? And he says, yes. And uh, that's when he went to his right rear pocket to retrieve his billfold. And at that time, it tightened the left side of his jacket that was zipped up slightly. And I could see a bulge that looked like a weapon. So I take that license. He gives me a Michigan driver's license with a Decker, Michigan address. I look at the picture. It looks like the same guy I'm talking to. Is that illegal in Oklahoma at the time? At, at that time, it was illegal to have a, a weapon, a loaded weapon on your person or inside your vehicle. We didn't have an uh-huh. a, a open or concealed carry permit okay. available. When you asked him, well, where were you coming from? Yeah, at one point during our conversation, uh, he had made the statement that he was on his way back from Arkansas, that he had uh, taken a load of his belongings down there. His car had broken down in Kansas, mm-hmm. and he was on his way back to retrieve more of his belongings. Did he go into custody willingly? He did. After uh, seeing that bulge, and uh, I, I took his driver's license, stuck that into my gun belt, mm-hmm. and I instructed him to take both hands and to uh, slowly unzip that jacket and slowly pull it back because I wanted to look under it. He's being very compliant, and he did that. He unzipped it. He's just getting ready to pull it back, and he looks me in the eye, and he says, I have a weapon. At that time, I'm, you know, telling him to get your hands up, turn around. I'm helping him turn around. I grabbed the bulge on the outside of his jacket. I drew my weapon and stuck it to the back of his head. I tell him to walk to the trunk of his car so I can search him. But before we get there, we're about halfway to the trunk. And he makes a statement. I thought he was trying to intimidate me at the time. He says, well, my weapon is loaded. And I nudged him in the back of the head with the barrel of my pistol. And I said, well, so is mine. And we continued our walk. Uh-huh. We get to the uh, trunk of the car, and I pull his jacket back, and I see that he's carrying a semi-automatic pistol and a shoulder holster where the barrel is pointing upward toward his armpit. And so at that point, I'm thinking, well, I don't think he was worried about uh, anything. He wasn't trying to intimidate me. Mm-hmm. that he was worried that I might accidentally discharge that firearm because I had such a death grip on the outside of that jacket and that firearm. Right. So um, I removed that firearm, and I threw it to the shoulder of the road, and he immediately says, hey, I've got a knife and a scabbard under my jacket as well. I found that, removed it, threw it to the shoulder of the road. Right. 
And he says, hey, I have a magazine for that weapon under, under my jacket. And I retrieved that, threw it to the shoulder, finished uh, patting him down, found no other weapons. And he was uh, then handcuffed behind his back and put in my unit. And that was the divine intervention. You just arrested Timothy McVeigh. I did, and I had no idea who he was or what he had done. Right. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Marshall, you told me about this. You want to talk about how they identified that uh, it was McVeigh? Well, once again, I I was not a direct part of the investigation, uh, but I am aware, and as you are, having gone through the museum, that, you know, they originally located the axle off of the uh, truck that uh, McVeigh had rented and ultimately blown up, and then using the axle off the truck and the, uh, the hidden vins on that, trace that back to the place where it was uh, rented. And I'm just going to say, the axle traveled, I mean, it must have been 300 yards in the air before at, landing. At on, least. Uh, it was west. Three. It, it was about three to 400 yards west. It was west in front of the tower, Regency Tower Apartments yes. is where it was, stuck That's in correct. the windshield of a car. And, this yep. is, and an axle is, I'm not a car guy, but what do you think that weighs? I don't know. Remember, it was axle two of a two-ton truck rented U-Haul. It wasn't five hundred pounds. Yeah, right. Five five hundred pounds, and it went four hundred yards, say, and landed on the top of somebody's car, uh, and they were, and the car was occupied, and miraculously, they weren't injured. Mm-hmm. And and once again, it, it took the trained eye of a of, of an old auto theft guy and a bomb tech named Mike McPherson to see that. And recognize what it was. Until you told me about the things that they do to deter chop shops. I didn't know that. Yeah, there are numbers secreted around certain vehicles in different places. And um, once again, if you have that expertise in auto theft, you can take some of those numbers and recreate the VIN number for the vehicle. And then ultimately, they realized who it checked to. Because as you know, there was nothing left of the truck in front, just a crater. And then ultimately, that led them to where the vehicle was rented. Right. Charlie, where, where were you when you figured out who you had arrested? Well, it was two days later uh, on Friday. The bombing occurred on Wednesday. And I was at my home when I received a, a phone call from my dispatch wanting to r- know if I ran a particular Social Security number through NCIC, the National Crime Information Center computer operated by the FBI mm-hmm. in D.C., and they gave me the number, and it was a low-digit number. And I said, well, I think it was the guy I arrested on uh, Wednesday, but I'd have to check his booking card to confirm that. And they asked me to do that. Uh, what was the feeling, though? Well, I didn't know why they were checking. You know, I, I wasn't asking questions in a paramilitary organization. You just follow orders. <laughs> and so I, uh, I called the uh, sheriff's office, had him ch- check the booking card, and uh-huh. it was uh, Tim McVeigh's Social Security number they were inquiring about. So I called dispatcher back, and I said, uh, yeah, that's the guy I put in jail Wednesday. And, then, of course, their next question was, well, is he still there? And I said, well, I have no idea. Probably not. Most people get out the next day on misdemeanor charges. And they uh, said, 
uh, will you check? And so I did, and uh, he was still there, and he was getting ready to go uh, before the judge uh, when I was talking right. to him. Why do you think this particular case took two days instead of the standard one? Well, some more of that divine intervention is the reason he was still in jail. Uh -huh. uh, on Thursday, when he, the judge normally would have seen new uh, arrestees right. early that morning, the judge was tied up in a divorce case and didn't see any new arrestees that morning. But the next morning, when he would have seen him early, probably 9 o'clock or before, the judge's son missed the school bus to go to a band function in nearby Stillwater, and he had to take his son over there, delaying court. Those have to be divine interventions wow. that are continuing to occur and keeps this man in custody and is not unleashed on society. Wow. And then you had a quick trial, which became a little bit of a circus for the, uh, for the gun charge. I was instructed to uh, put a hold on McVeigh for the FBI that he was a suspect in mm -hmm. the bombing. Mm -hmm. And so the sheriff went up to the courtroom and uh, talked to the assistant district attorney, informed the judge what was going on. The judge stopped the proceeding that was ongoing, uh, immediately went ahead and appointed uh, McVeigh an attorney, and then he was taken back up to the jail and locked up. And uh, a hold was placed on him until the FBI could arrive. Right. The FBI does arrive that day or the next day i'm sure that i'm sure, gotta be that day yes i was instructed to uh, respond to the sheriff's office and that the fbi would contact me there right. when i went into the sheriff's office the sheriff was on the phone with an agent i think actually with an atf agent and i visited with him they were inquiring as to where the car was at mm -hmm. and i told them it was left at the roadside so they asked that i meet them at the roadside and they would uh, make their way up by way of a helicopter and right. meet me there, and they and they did. Right, right. And so they came and got him. And Chuck, where'd they take him? Uh, his initial appearance was held um, at Tinker Air Force Base in a, in a secure hangar. Uh, judge Ronald Howlin uh, was the one who did, a magistrate judge who did his initial appearance. Um, initially, he was. We had one floor of. Uh, one entire floor of the Oklahoma County Jail um, where where he was being hit, being held until he was moved to the federal prison in El Reno. And the trial was going to be in Oklahoma City? Yes, the trial initially was going to be held in Oklahoma City. Uh, judge Wayne Alley was the, the judge who was right. assigned, uh, assigned to the case. And we had, I, I can't tell you how many hearings. We had several hearings uh, here in Oklahoma City before it was decided mm -hmm. that there was going to be a change of venue and he was right. going to be moved to uh, Denver, Colorado. So when did you first make contact with McVeigh? Um, the afternoon that the FBI brought him back to Oklahoma City. Right. Um, he, he was processed uh, that day. And that was the very first contact that, that I ever had with him. And I was actually assigned to the uh, convoy um, to take him out to Tinker Air Force Base for his initial appearance in front of Judge Howland. So you would have hands on McVeigh. How far was that from the day of the bombing? Again, the first time I saw him was the day that the FBI uh, was brought that, him. What, what, what day was that? 
Do you remember? Was that three days? Friday. 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 Yeah, on Friday. Two, two days. Um, that was the first contact that that mm-hmm. I ever had with him was was on that Friday, and I believe we had his initial appearance that same right. day. When you say contact, you actually have hands on. Correct. Just like any other federal prisoner. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. But unlike any other federal prisoner, you had been involved in the aftermath of the bombing and trying to you know render assistance to people you had been up to the dea floor that had sustained the most fatalities one thing very important to me about that was the the dea agent that i had been out with the night before um, his name was kenny mccullough good friend of mine and what i didn't know was after i dropped that radio off (laughs) kenny actually and he parked two parking spaces down from me in the parking garage kenny had had got to work shortly after I left the DEA office, and I, I didn't know until late that evening. Uh, I mean, we we were here for over 24 hours initially, but I didn't know until late that evening that that Kenny had actually come to work and been killed in the bombing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the so I, you you so you knew all of this, you had experienced all this, and now you actually had physical. Contact with the perpetrator, and it and it was still surreal to me at the time because for at least the first day, um, we we were all operating on handheld radios, and we had got several um, updates um, throughout the first day that the FBI had two Middle Eastern uh, suspects um, for the Oklahoma City bombing that they were. I can't remember if they were in custody or they were searching for, mm-hmm. and and we all thought yeah, Middle Eastern. I mean, this we did we had no idea it was another American that had done this. So the very first time that I had contact with McVeigh, and and I mean, we had learned the day before on Thursday that um, a guy by the name of Timothy McVeigh was was in custody up in uh, Noble County. Um, and was the the main suspect in the bombing we we were all still a little confused you know that another American could do this so the very first time I made eye to eye contact or hand to hand contact with him i was <clears throat> uh, I, I was I was pretty bitter um, I, of course had, they hadn't proved yet that he'd he'd done it mm-hmm. but it was just it was unbelievable to me that uh another American could, could have done this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I mean, man, I, you know, there, there are things that you hear about that sometimes the marshals are involved in some really extraordinarily heinous crimes, uh, against children and stuff. And, and I can't sometimes imagine how you stay in control. Like where's the line that you're going to cross even as a member of law enforcement, but you're human, that, you know, to keep your emotions and keep your anger in check had to have had to have been, I imagine, extraordinarily difficult, no? It was, and our chief at the time, Brad Miller, um, Brad had, had called us all in once McVeigh was in federal custody. Um, Brad called us, called us all in and, 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 he had a 30-minute conversation with us, and he told us, he said, look, guys, 
Um, I mean, all the federal agents that were killed that day were, were good friends of ours. Uh, Mickey Maroney, I mean, uh, Claude Madera, every single one of them, Kenny, were, they were all good friends of ours. Mm-hmm. And we were pretty close to them. And Brad said, it's going to be tough. He said, uh, this is the guy that's accused of, of, of killing some of y'all's best friends. And he said, we're going to be professional. Um, he said, we're going to put our, our anger aside. And he said, the last thing that I want to do is see any one of you guys get in a bind over mistreatment uh, of this guy. He said, it's going to be a lot of publicity. Um, he said, we're going to be professional uh, all the way. Right. And I think it was within a couple days, um, Brad uh, had called myself and, and Chris McNeil in and told us that um, we were going to be in charge of the, the prisoner detail at Oklahoma County, that we had got a whole floor of Oklahoma County, and that we were going to be Chris, we were going to work 12-hour shifts, and uh, we would both be in charge. We ha- would have a, a couple of guards with us to help us, but we were going to be in charge and that there was going to be no other federal prisoners on that floor. Nobody was going to have access to it. Um, he told us that not even the Oklahoma County jail staff would have access to it, just us. Mm-hmm. And that that was probably the the hardest part for me was, uh, you know, those those days that we had to spend with him at the jail knowing knowing what he had done Mm -hmm. he's on trial you haven't mirandized him so anything he says to you can't be used against him were there any conversations that you had with him i i remember and 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 especially with timothy mcveigh and 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 charlie you could i don't know if you had the same feeling about him that I did, but he was, he was very stoic, um, very, very much a soldier persona. Um, he, he never made any comments about blowing up the building, but I remember him making comments about, um, the, con- the, the, the condition, uh, of our country at the time. And I remember him saying that he asked, I remember him asking me, if I'd ever been in the military, uh, I told him that I was, and he said, he told me, thank you for your service. He said, I was in the army too. And, uh, he told me that it's it, something to the effect of, we've got to take this country back. Mm-hmm. But we were, we were instructed from Brad during that meeting to be very careful about anything that we said to him or, or ask him. And we knew that, if we did, you know, it, it was going to end up in court and stuff. So we we completely avoided talking about the bombing or anything like that. But we we had several conversations about um, our our country. And uh, again, the, the hardest part for me to accept was that another American could did this because I had been assigned to um, Ruby Ridge up in Idaho mm-hmm. um, when Billy Deegan was one of our guys was killed up there and. I was I was very good friends with uh, Larry Cooper uh, at the time and Art Roderick, the guys that were up there. And, and again, it was uh, it was another American, um, you know, Randy Weaver, that that did this. And it, I was pretty new to the Marshal Service uh-huh. um, at the time. And I, I mean, all within a couple of years, we had Ruby Ridge. Um, <laughs> I, I took our plane. Uh, I was at J. Pat's at the time. I took our plane down to. Uh, 
the David Koresh compound when when that was going on, and 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 this was this was all really right. eye opening to me that three other Americans could have done the things that Randy Weaver, David Koresh, and now Timothy McVeigh have done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I only learned by watching the special that McVeigh was actually at Waco. That's correct. We had found out later. Uh, I think it was while the trial was going on. Um, he was uh, Timothy McVeigh was good friends with the Keogh brothers, uh, which we had we had arrested a couple of them out in Yukon um, not too long before that, and that we found out that he was really good friends with them. They are noteworthy because they were they were actually. And I don't remember exactly their their role uh, with McVeigh and, and Nichols, but they were they were good friends with them, and I believe the Keogh brothers had been at the compound over in Arkansas with them at uh-huh. one time. McVeigh obviously was targeting because I guess because of Waco, the ATF, DEA, the FBI, SAC at the time, um, special agent in charge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was actually detailed to the um, the Waco incident, and I've I've always believed all along that's the reason he targeted Oklahoma City because Bob Ricks um, was in ah, charge. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And look, right up to the point of his execution, he showed no remorse. Absolutely. Absolutely. I. I went for one rotation um, up to Denver during the trial. He showed no remorse during the trial. Talked to a lot of the the deputies in Denver um, that were with him on a daily basis. And as far as I know, I I, I don't know anybody that that said he ever, ever, ever showed any remorse whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And you had Terry Nichols in the jail as well? Mm Mm-hmm. And was he a different kind of a guy? Much more jovial. Uh, Again, McVeigh, I remember him being very stoic and and soldieristic. McVeigh was a lot more jovial. I mean, he was pleasant to be around. Um, never, never seemed as as serious or as intent as as McVeigh. But but for a while, he was going to potentially also going to face the death penalty. Correct. I'm shocked that he had that demeanor. Uh, me too. Uh, to to this day, I mean, they were. In my opinion, they were nothing alike in personality. Um, uh, Terry Nichols is a guy that seemed to me like a guy that uh, you'd meet on the street and and have a pleasant conversation with. Right. Uh, McVeigh, not so much. Right, right. I think Marshall Kuhlman described it the absolute best a few minutes ago when he said that morning was was total chaos. Uh, I mean, total chaos. We were... We'd been in the building 30 minutes um, when, I, I don't know, I don't remember the time frame. We, we'd been in the building for a while when we were all told to evacuate the building, that another bomb, do you remember how long? Right. Yeah, it, it was shortly thereafter, and uh, I think we were talking yesterday, mm. you know, when they when that inert, turned out to be an inert device from uh, ATF was found, um, and everybody evacuated, that kind of gave... Um, you know, the Oklahoma City Police Department and all the other first responders an opportunity to, to lock down that crime scene because um, obviously we, we can't forget the fact that even though as chaotic as it was, we had to at some point start the process, and that was a crime scene. And, uh, and you know, the other thing to point out is uh, the information flow was so much different in 1995 than it is today. 
And I know we're talking about this, and, and people need to understand that back then we had cell phones, um, but it wasn't 24 hours, seven days a week news. And also the other thing that we learned from that tragedy was uh, everybody in this entire metro area was trying to call their loved ones to find out where they were. So the vast majority of our cell phones would not work. Hmm. So we are trying to communicate on radios, but when you're trying to communicate with other agencies and set up perimeters and, and set up command posts, it's very, very difficult to do that when your cell phones won't work. So that was one very important lesson that we learned uh, that morning. But, but obviously after the initial um, chaos ended is when you sit down to do the work hmm. of, of securing the crime scene and then what comes next? Obviously, and, I, and on the first day, you told me you were you were there till midnight. I think I think I finally went home about midnight because um, I was told my assignment would be uh, to operate the temporary morgue. So I was told to go home and get some rest. And then the first thing in the morning, I got back down here about six, and my job was to set up the temporary morgue over in the church that's located just east of of the Murrah site. Um, obviously, we needed uh, uh, we as law enforcement when i say we i'm not just talking about the oklahoma city police department i'm talking about all the other metro agencies i'm talking about the highway patrol talking about the federal partners atf dea mm -hmm, mm -hmm. fbi uh you know an investigation needs to be conducted to determine what happened uh, evidence needs to be collected so there were obviously bomb techs on scene working on the crater um, obviously fire crews were going inside still rescuing people and on top of that, as, as we were finding victims, uh, those victims had to be uh, processed. And so that's where we came in. We would come in and take the victim um, across the street to the church, and then uh, the, the victim would be processed. And by that, I mean um, uh, they would be searched for any valuables or identification so mm -hmm. we could try and figure out who they were. Uh, some initial photographs were taken. And then um, ultimately, we got a process in place to get those all those victims over to the morgue, uh, uh, so the coroner could conduct an autopsy to determine uh, cause of death and and uh, make final identification. Right. And how long did you, did you run the morgue? Uh, every day till they closed the building down. And that was how many days? Uh, 17, 18 days, 18 I think. Days, and, yeah. and then at that point, um, um, the fire crews. Uh, made a determination that they had gotten everybody that they could. We knew there were uh, three or four more bodies located in a certain area, but the uh, engineers and fire crews had decided that it was not safe to move uh, some of those uh, concrete slabs to get them. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, the uh, building was imploded, and then that same that same crew we had that last day came back and retrieved those bodies uh, once the debris was removed. Mm. Well. Uh an interesting thing, what, what Marshall Kuhlman said just now, Chris, um, I mean, to give you an idea of, of how chaotic, and, and I mean, for those first 17 days or whatever, we were, we were working 16 to 18 hours a day. My, my dad and my brother um, were both local fun funeral directors at the time, and they were at the morgue um, ass assisting help processing the body. And I never even knew my dad, and, and this was, what, a block away from the Murrah building where the morgue was? I never even knew that my dad and my brother were over there for 17 days. I mean, we just, we, we literally, we were, we were all just in a fog for seven, first 17 days trying to find 
our buddies that were killed in the bombing. Right, right. June 11th, 2001 rolls around, and Timothy McVeigh is executed at the U.S. Penitentiary in Tierra Haute, Indiana. How'd that, how'd that day feel for you? Extremely, I, I, I felt like justice had been served that day. Mm-hmm. That morning, there were uh, the deputies that were, were here um, the morning of the bombing. I remember being with uh, all of those deputies uh, watching the, the news footage of the execution. And I think that every one of us felt exactly the same, that, that justice had been served. Mm-hmm. I think I could say the same as well. We, we obviously monitored the trial very close, um, obviously by TV as we could. Um, it, it, it was one of those days that uh, we all wanted to happen. And when it finally did, I think there was some closure there a little bit, even though I think there's still so many unanswered questions about um, what occurred and who was involved. And, you, you know, I still personally wish there were some more answers to that, but, but I think there was some closure there to at least uh, have that execution carried out. I can definitely say that uh, he was very deserving of being executed for the crime that he committed I know in our society today, there's a lot of people who do not support the death penalty, but it was very applicable in his case. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Gentlemen, as we wrap things up, are there any final words or takeaways that you'd like to leave us with? You know, the bottom line is, um, and even though now it may have become cliche, but this really created the Oklahoma standard. Um, in my days down at the bombing, obviously I met a, a number of of law enforcement agencies from around the the state, around the country, uh, rescue units that came in, but but the uh, relationship building between the Oklahoma City Police Department, uh, the, the Sheriff's Departments, the Highway Patrol, the federal agencies, ATF, DEA, FBI, uh, the Marshal Service, um, it was really phenomenal to be a part of that operation, as it were. And it was also mentioned that I was down there every day uh, from early morning hours to late, late at night. Uh, I never once paid for a meal. Uh, the, the citizens of this community were a part of that Oklahoma standard, too. Mm-hmm. Not just the law enforcement repo- response, but the, the citizens, the business owners. Um, it just, it, it's hard to describe that if something was needed and you asked for something, if you asked for a pair of gloves, you got a case of gloves delivered. If you ask for, uh, if you need it, it was, I don't know if y'all remember, but for several days after that, it rained. Mm-hmm. Well, we're out working. We need raincoats. Next thing you know, there are raincoats just galore. Mm-hmm. So anything that we needed as first responders uh, w- was there uh, very, very quickly. And once again, I, I can't emphasize enough how everybody worked together uh, with the common goal of trying to find out who did this to our community and, and ultimately bring them to justice. So, so to me, that, that was my biggest learning point was it was an honor for me to be a small part of that, but to see this community come together mm-hmm. uh, uh, in an effort to try and bring that to conclusion. And once again, um, there's also the story about the first responder that came from New York. Um, he says that he came here with a dollar in his pocket and the search and rescue team, and he left with the same dollar in his pocket. But that's true. Uh, anybody here... Uh, 
you didn't want for anything because that was part of that Oklahoma standard that I think was created and still lives today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. An extraordinary tragedy. I think it's always really interesting to hear perspectives that we don't normally uh, get a chance to listen to. So thank you very much for coming in and sharing your thoughts. Uh, Marshal Johnny Kuhlman, retired Noble County Sheriff Charlie Hanger, and Deputy Marshal Chuck McNeil. Thank Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And finally, Chasing Evil is produced with the cooperation of the United States Marshal Service and contains interviews with current and retired employees as well as other persons. Opinions, positions, and views expressed by any of them may not reflect the official views, positions, or policies of the United States Marshal Service. Be safe, everyone. <laughs>